0: This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Patricia Sippel, professor of Japanese studies at Toyo Ewa University. Recently, Dr. Sippel has been researching rivers and flood control in early modern and modern Japan. Dr. Simple, thank you so much for chatting with me today.
1: Hello, I'm glad to do it.
0: The reason I wanted to talk to you is I really haven't had too many scholars on the podcast who study environmental history. This is a field that's been emerging in Japanese studies, and certainly you're one of the ones promoting it. How is it that you got into environmental history and what is it about environmental history that leads to new questions and conclusions about Japanese history?
1: Let me just say first, before saying how I got into it, you, you know, of course, that Environmental history basically studies the interaction between humans and the natural world in the past. That's pretty simple. It's rather new. It came into being as a discipline perhaps during the 60s and the 70s as a direct consequence of the growing awareness of worldwide environmental problems, things like water, air pollution, overuse of resources, etc. Loss of wilderness was another big one. At that stage, historians, many of them in the United States, looked for origins of contemporary problems. And of course, they drew on older specialties that have been around things like geography, anthropology. And then at the same time, the emergence of world history by scholars such as William McNeill introduced interdisciplinary and continental-wide, even world-scale studies. And so in the sense, environmental history has become very much connected with interdisciplinary and world history approaches. Now, those were the foundations. Now, much of the early work was somewhat unilateral, um, emphasising the impact, usually negative, of humans on the environment. Somebody referred to these Mm as tragic tales. But then, thanks to the word of people you probably know, Alfred Crosby, Don Worcester, William Cronin, Clive Ponting and others, the discipline has matured and it's broadened. Worcester divided up three areas. He said we look at the natural realm, we look at socioeconomic things, and we look at actually the areas of ideas, laws, perceptions as well. And that, as it got going, then turned into what's recognized now as environmental history. And the American Society was set up in this 1975 or so. Europeans took longer to get going, and Japan a little later even than that. Probably the basic association for environmental studies that relates to Japan is the Eight, the East Asian Environmental History, set up in 2009 largely by people based in Taiwan and um, it's going to have its fifth biennial meeting this coming October in Taiwan. So that's, the, that's just how the discipline got started. Now in Japan, Japan of course has a really strong background of studies in all sorts of areas related to the environment, historical geography, demography, agriculture, land use, as well as literature and religion. And then there's all the work of local historians. So a lot of the information was there. Japan, too, experienced the social movements, political activism on the environment in the 1970s that was seen in other places around the world. But it's usually said that the environmental history of Japan emerged as a field a little later, 1980s, 1990s. In English language scholarship, it emerged as one of the new histories, along with gender, children, minorities that attracted interest after the collapse of the modernization framework. But both among scholars writing in English and in Japanese, there was an emphasis on industrial pollution, including that caused by the Ashio copper mine in the Meiji era, and the big industrial pollution cases of the post-war era, effects on human health, anti-pollution, again, tragic tales. One academic pioneer, you may not know her name, was Iijima Nobuko, who wrote about victims of pollution incidents in the 1980s. And then one interesting thing is that Fred Notelfer's article on the Ashio disaster mine, that was published in the Journal of Japan Studies in 1975. And um, so going back, Kenneth Strong's Ox Against the Storm on Tanaka Shouzo was a little later, 77. Then, of course, people, scholars looked to earlier years. They had the gold maps, archaeological remains, started to look at the connection between people's livelihoods and the environment. And in the Edo era, they became interested in development of land for agriculture, management, preservation of resources, rivers, fisheries, forests, the things that I'm interested in. Conrad Topman's work emerged as the seminal English language study on Japanese environmental history. You probably know that he wrote that the establishment of peace under the Tokugawa government from the late 16th century prompted what we might now call development rush in the 17th. Forests were depleted to supply the needs of a growing population. New forms of social organisation, they were building towns, clearing land for agriculture, and of course supplying fuel. Fortunately, however, as the forest began depleted, this is according to Totman, 18th century efforts to restore forests and woodlands developed, better systems of management, and Japan then stepped back from the brink of ecological disaster and entered the modern era as the Green Archipelago. Now, infusing the history of Edo-era forestry, which was already there, with an overtly environmental history perspective, transformed Japanese studies of early modern forestry. And it added to new critical work that continued amongst Japanese scholars. Um, One famous scholar who has continued to work on forestry from an environmental perspective is Saito Osamu, and secured Japan's place as a rare example of pulling back from the brink in global environmental history studies. With Japan, the interest in environmental history also got impetus from outside of academia, a growing awareness, and particularly from around the 1990s following the collapse of the bubble, a growing awareness that Edo era experienced what today we call sustainable living. A famous novelist, popular novelist, Ishikawa Esuke, wrote several best-selling books on Edo period recycling, sustainability, and reminding people that Japan was not always a throwaway culture. He said Edo people recycled goods, etc., etc but as Japan modernized Japanese people had rejected their traditions and then created you know new environmental problems he published books called what, O edo recycled jijo and or edo ecology etc 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 some of them translated into english and then the japanese government got into the act and it used edo era environmental sort of themes to transform what it called a sound material cycle society. In Japanese, that's Junkan Gata Shakai, Made a report in which they said that would be the model for Japan. They used Hokusai, of all people, as the theme person. And Hokusai even recommended spreading Japanese technologies to other countries in East Asia. So all of these things became a sort of public promotion of an environmental way of of looking at Japanese history. Around this time, too, Susan Hanley's book on um, everyday things in pre-modern Japan was published. Now, of course, this was maybe the lighter side of environmental studies. Other people, a famous name here is Mizumoto Kunihiko, wrote a whole, the Edo period volume, in a whole series on environmental history, covers things like mining, resources, natural disasters, agriculture, pets, pretty much all of the themes that we associate with environmental history today. And then in English, Margaret McKean talked about commons. Phil Brown, of course, has written very much about the transformation of Japanese geography through, again, river engineering and other things. So now environmental history in Japan has emerged as a fairly diverse world. Still still a lot of work on pollution, environmental destruction, but many of the other themes that we associate with global history throughout the world, things that I've mentioned before, and they're not simply connected with people's effects on the environment, it's people in early areas, modern eras, people in cities as well as countries, and of course, plants, animals, the entire ecology, and not simply in the human living.
0: That's a fascinating point about the tragic tales approach of environmental history. And we might also add in Brett Walker's book, Toxic Archipelago, Ishimura Michiko, The Paradise and the Sea of Sorrow, uh, also writing about that kind of tragic element of, of humans negatively impacting the environment. Now, your own work has looked at the rivers and flood control in the early modern and modern periods. Can you tell us more about that project and how you got into that research?
1: I was working as an Edo period historian on agricultural taxes and the finances of the Tokugawa bakufu. I had no thought of going through into the modern era. And I discovered that disasters were a really big item in the expenses of the 18th century. There were the big ones, the Kanto earthquake, there was the Mount Fuji eruption, a big, big flood in 1742, Mount Asama eruption, 19, 1780s. But what I actually saw was that there was flooding. Pretty much every other year, the Bakafu would be stuck with some very large-scale flood that somebody wanted it to deal with. Yes, in the 18th century alone, and this was after not trying to take on too many cases, the Bakafu undertook big flood control work um, more than 70 times along major rivers, and mostly in the Kanto, down in an area that interested me a lot, down in Owari-Ise, and then some of the places in between. One of the things that caught my attention, apart from the sheer number of incidents, now this was the era when Japan was presumably pulling back from the ecological disaster caused, caused by deforestation, were the rather aggressive means to control them. You know, The word for flood control in Japanese is chisui, um, si is water, and the chi is you know, seiji no chi, it's osamiru, to control. And so what I noticed is that somewhat differently from living with nature, what people wanted and what they wanted the government to do was actually basically control it. And that set me going, looking at these methods of controlling floods. I looked at a big one in the the middle of the 18th century, down on the three rivers, the Kiso, Ibi, Nagara. And they struck my attention because right at that very time, there was a big environmental movement in Japan against the building of a, of a dam right at the estuary of the Nagara. And it occurred to me that this was the very same river I was looking at in the Edo period. And I went back, discovered that there were a series of efforts to, to control that river and the other two that it was connected with. What happened is that there were three rivers all flowing into the ocean, to Bay, but doing so by joining up with each other. So when one flooded, it blocked up the other, and people in the local area who were living in areas where before nobody would live, right, you know, right, basically on the estuary of those rivers, people were demanding that the Bakufu do something. In the mid 18th century, the Bakufu finally said, "Okay, we'll try." And what they tried to do was basically separate, divide up the rivers by means like putting in one stage just old boats with rocks in them, other times bamboo things, I mean, all sorts of things. The idea was that if they could separate the rivers, dam off others they could then reduce this volume of very slow-moving water that flooded the area so um, so frequently. Well, it didn't work. It didn't work. And the flooding continued right till the end of the Edo period. Now, without even realising, of course, I kept the story going, and I discovered that as soon as the Meiji period came along, and this is where we start to see, does the Meiji even mean anything, those same local people immediately wrote to Tokyo and said, you know, we need help with this. They wanted something, what they called not the old makeshift policies of the Edel period. They wanted a real solution to the problem. They also wanted foreign technology, and they were terribly disappointed when a Dutchman who was sent down to look at the area in the 1870s said, you know, there's not much point in building a dam. You really need to look at upstream management, deforestation, controlling soil erosion. So that was not what they wanted to hear. They kept campaigning. And eventually, in the 1880s, what was supposed to be the final plan um, was set in motion. It was very much like the Edel period Plan, again, dividing the rivers, setting up damming here, in, here and there. It took a long time, but in 1912 it was finished. Basically that seemed to be the answer. Then, you know, post-war era comes. There's a big, big typhoon in the 1959, the ECB typhoon. And again, this time largely from the government let's continue this work of separating the rivers by building a very large dam right at the mouth of the Nagara River. That the talks went on for a long, long time. By the 1980s and 90s, a lot of the original reason for doing it, supplying water for industrial uses, no longer existed, but the government was committed to it. Now this time there was opposition to the plan, mostly however by environmental groups from outside. But the plan went ahead and the the dam, the Nagara Estri Barge, was completed in 1995. Now, if you look at that long, long story, it doesn't match the story of sustainable edo followed by you know industrially polluting Meiji. And in fact, I thought then, and I still do, that there's much less of a sharp break between before and after than the fact that what Meiji allowed Japan to do was to marshal resources to carry out you know what was basically an older approach you know, it had the money, well, it got the money, had the management, had the technology, and basically there's a confidence that new technology um, would allow them to to really control the rivers. And so to that extent, it seems to me that this arc of flood control is one that for me started out very small in the 18th century as a tax problem, but basically it's it goes right into the modern era and continues to this day of course worsened by changes in climatic changes and changes in settlement and weather patterns. It starts from history, but it ends up being concerned with things that affect Japan today.
0: You mentioned that you're researching the Nagarat River and also this dam that gets built in the 1980s and 1990s. And that name might ring a bell for the listeners because, as I understand it, the Nagara was the last free-flowing river in the entire island of Honshu. And as you said, that really does counter this narrative that we see a lot in environmental history, that modernity brought this irrevocable break between humans and the environment. You know, this Marxian term, the metabolic rift, gets often applied and say, well, it's the coming of industrial capitalism and modernity that completely devastates this relationship between humans and the environment. But you're saying there's maybe evidence then that early modern societies or pre-modern societies weren't necessarily more sustainable than modern ones?
1: I wouldn't say it quite so strongly, but I guess one of the things that I do feel and it can be seen very clearly in Japanese history, and a lot of people pointed this out, is that a lot of the problems that we do associate with modern Japan, in fact, had their origins, A rather simple example, if I can get off flood control for a minute, is actually mining. Today, people don't think of Japan as a mining country. Japan is the country so-called without resources, right? But what they do know about mining is often connected with the Ashio mine pollution incident. I mentioned that as one of the first essays in environmental history on Japan written in English, the article by Notelfer. Now, the Ashio mine pollution incident was in the Meiji era. Its effects extended, of course, into the 20th century. But if you go back into the Edo period, Japan in the Edo period, you know, had a strong mining industry. It started out in the late 1500s, 1600s with silver and gold. By the mid 18th century, when those sources were drying up, it was copper. And then, of course, in the Meiji period, if we keep the story going, coal and copper again become really important sources of export income to provide income for the Meiji development. Now, in the Edo period, people knew, as they know today, that mining causes damage to the environment, both through the sulfur that's into the air, but also into the tailings, the things like arsenic, cadmium, whatever, that are released in the tailings that are produced during the refinement of, say, copper. And this also similar things happen in the refining of iron um, and other metals that were part of an industry in the Edo period throughout Japan, people were doing this. Now, people in local areas knew this, they didn't like it. And I've actually, again, using a lot of early work, there's a book called Kinsei Kogai no Kenkyu by a man named Ando Seichi. And that Kogai is pollution. And this Ando makes the point that Kogai is a new word, but Kogai, the reality, is actually not new at all. And um, he traces a lot of these village. Movements against mines that were set up in all sorts of places throughout the Edo period. Today we think of mining as a huge industry, great big places dotted here and there. In the Edo period, there were a lot of little mines. Contractors would come in, they'd mine, and then if they were lucky, the contract would be uh, renewed. Now, in the early Edo period, if people in the area thought that the mining was dangerous to, their, to agriculture because of poisoning the water, they would often protest against giving the license. And in many cases, the mining would be stopped. By the end of the Edo period, mining is much more important, particularly copper. And so one sees cases where people in the local areas are asking to have a given mine stopped. And then you'll find that there's a discussion now. We understand that this is not good for local people, but actually the mine is also important. We need the copper. We need the iron. And so during the Edo period, not after it, one can see a shift between simply saying, agriculture is more important, we don't want this pollution, and, well, it's unfortunate, we don't like it, but basically pollution is part of the way of life here. And in those cases, sometimes the local people's protests were simply rejected. Often they were given some form of compensation. And in some areas, as a very nice quote i found from an unknown person from somewhere up in Morioka he says basically what we need to do is look at what's important for the kuni for the you know, for the han and if the mining is say 70% more important than agriculture then we prioritize that 70% if we think on the other hand that it's not so important then maybe you know we'll we'll get rid of the mine. but the whole point of this was that people knew about pollution from mines there were protests against it Governments were sympathetic to the bad effects it was having on agriculture and people's lives, but it didn't necessarily mean that they always got rid of the mines, that very often economic realities played out. And that's something that we don't often hear in stories of the Edo period. So it doesn't mean that Edo, Edo society was not sustainable. Of course, they did things that in the modern era Japan has never thought of, but it does mean that it wasn't pure, certainly no pristine wilderness. And I guess. Another thing that environmental history has had to work against is this over-romanticising the pre-industrial past.
0: And speaking of the Ashio Copper Mine disaster and the construction of the Nagata River Dam, damming up the last free-flowing river... I mean, this is somewhat contradictory to this idea of Japan as the land of natural beauty, right? We get all these images of Mount Fuji and Sakura cherry blossoms. Uh, You get these Nihonjinron-esque ideas of Japan is the only place in the world that has four distinct seasons. And there is that kind of celebration of Japanese natural beauty. Fukuzawa Yukichi at one point was even talking about how the only thing Japan has to be proud of vis-a-vis the West is that we have the natural beauty that, that they don't. But then looking at these examples of the construction state in the post-war period, literally building bridges to nowhere, in some case really does challenge that idea.
1: And that, of course, is part of a very long tradition of civil engineering. You know, if you, Japan is a rice-grown country, you know, getting a paddy field requires cutting down trees, leveling the land, bringing in the water, draining the water. So the amount of actually, manipulation of the environment that was necessary to produce you know this beautiful idyllic society is actually not inconsiderable and If to go back to a point I made earlier, one of the things that shocked me when I start looking I, I still find it interesting is the what I call the aggressiveness of the manipulation of the environment that people not only were willing to do but seemingly did without Thinking too much of certainly of ecological consequences right through the Meiji period. I've talked about flood control, but there are other areas. The history of the development of Tokyo. We know that when Edo started going, one of the very big things was actually moving out some of the major rivers. The Tonegawa moved, you know, all the way out to Choshi instead of flowing into Edo Bay. Arakawa River was a little later, but also moved. Rivers were literally moved by taking a river course then building something that connected it with a river to the east, in this case, normally to the east, moving it there, cutting off the connection to the original phone and then by that way, just moving rivers over and over and over. The Watarase River gets connected then to something that it was never connected with before. The Tonic River not only has a whole new route, but its tributaries now change because the river, the whole river pattern has been changed. Much later, again, as the Josui were being built for the water supply of Edo, they again, the, of course, we know about the Kanda River was produced to bring water in from Inokashira. But then there was another one called the Senkawa, which was built a little later, again for water downtown. But later on in, in the Meiji era, that the Senkawa, which was no longer used for water, was being revived to supply the paper industry in Oji. And there wasn't enough water. And so, what did they do is that they said, okay, Will connect it with something else. And so they then reworked the canals so that they actually flowed from entirely different rivers. There was the Tamagawa, but then there were also other rivers, the Kandagawa, and they simply built canals that, that joined them all up without having any sense that this was actually, it's sort of like bringing people together, mixing this one and that one without ever having thought that to do that might have enormous effects not only on people's livelihoods but on the ecology of the plants, the fish, the whatever living there. And this sort of rather human-centred willingness to just rework the natural environment is something that I think goes well back even before the Meiji period. And I think it does in some senses encourage us to modulate a little bit our sense of Japanese people living closely with nature. The smelling of the cherry blossoms is only one aspect of it.
0: If I could return to something you'd mentioned earlier about how environmental history has kind of grew out of the environmentalist movement. And I wonder if that has an, an impact on the field. And you mentioned that many of these stories are the tragic tales. I mean, is this because many of the environmental historians themselves are coming at it from this environmentalist bent? And I'm wondering if, does Japan have the same thing? We've seen a number of examples of environmental issues in Japan, and there's been a number of issues with you know, damming rivers, as you mentioned. Uh, redirecting rivers or even putting in flood control in rivers. What is it now? There are no free-flowing rivers in Japan at all. What kind of environmentalist pushback is there and what role do scholars play in that?
1: The environmental movement, of course, is strong. One thing about the damming of the rivers is that at the very time that the Nagara Dam was completed, the government was already pulling back from some big constructions. You mentioned this one in Guma, but there are various areas in Japan where dams had been planned but there was some pushback and then the, the thought that maybe these weren't necessary after all the other thing now of course is that the population is declining the amount of funds available for huge projects is decreasing meaning that there are fewer of these big construction state type dams etc than there were before but to answer the question to what extent does environmental activism how does that infuse environmental studies of course they're connected Um, It's very difficult to find somebody who writes environmental history who's not actually interested in the environmental impact of the things that he or she studies, and that goes both ways. But I think in general, now in environmental studies, the sense is that if we're looking at the relationship between humans and the environment, that we need to make the picture much more complex than it's been. Simply looking for bad things that people have done to the environment really means that we maybe don't see all of the other things, the other even seemingly benign ways in which humans have actually over long centuries altered the the ecology of an area by the way they live. Of course, we also realize that you know, we live in the environment. So simply to say humans shouldn't touch the environment is is, is ridiculous. And I think now people are actually much more concerned to look at these sort of effects that go in multiple directions between you know humans, animals, all sorts of you know living creatures, even the non-animate things. in a volume edited by Bruce Batten and Philip Brown, remember that the introduction to that volume picks up the issue of how do we look at environmental history with sort of a little bit in more complex fashion And they for instance pick up the theme of resilience. And that in Japan is a really important one now, largely, of course, because of, of the uh, 2011 disaster, but also around the world now, people are seeing that we're here, we're living in nature. And one of the ways to see it is simply now to start to look to see how understanding the, the various connections in all sorts of directions between the human world and the, and the world that's around them will actually make the world a better place. So it's not so much an environmental movement against something as a general sense that, you know, that the world, the, the globe is in danger and that the more we know about it, the more we can do to make our lives more sustainable.
0: The Magie at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, Meiji at 150artsubcca Thank you for listening.